I want this morning to get into James chapter 2. Again, uh, we will be finishing up that chapter, hopefully. And it's a, it's a very, very interesting chapter because if this chapter, taken in context of the whole Word of God, opens up the Word of God. What does God require of me? How is salvation really obtained? Is it by faith only without works? Or is it by faith with works? Is it by works and faith comes later? What is this this faith? How am I saved? I want to know. If Mark Cahill's, you're just one breath away from eternity, if that is true, and biblically it is, I want to know how to be saved. I want to know how I am saved. There's so many people that don't dabble in the book of James because they can't come to understanding. They have certain uh, phrases or certain scriptures that takes about works, faith without works is dead and so forth, and they have a hard time understanding. What is, how does this pan out in the light of the word of God? Am I saved by faith alone? Or am I saved by faith plus works? We're going to spend a lot of time on this. Because a right understanding will set you free. A wrong understanding will, will really uh, tangle you up. I want to know what God requires of me. I want to know how I am saved. We've, we know for one thing that we're saved by realizing that there's no favoritism with God. We realize that God reaches down and saves the poor, the destitute, the, the filthy, the dirty, the down and out man. And we know that when people who claim to think that they must be good and refined and everything to get in the kingdom of God, we realize that's not true. God's not like that. God doesn't say, Jeff, you know, I know you're young, you're 22 years of age, but you better clean your act up. And when you do, then come and talk to me, and then we'll talk. God never, ever does that. He never requires me to clean up my act, to do the best I can before he will save me. And yet there's the other camp that say, you know what, you just have to try and do your best. Good works, good works. I am a religious person now. I used to do this and that and dance and smoke and drink and all, but I'm a, I'm, a, no, I'm a religious man now. I go to church every day. I clean my act up. And they think that's what's going to get them to heaven. Is it? No. Because the Bible, from Genesis 1 all the way through, God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. God does not, he's not a repairman. I don't go to God like I would take my car to a repair shop and ask God to fix me. This might be alarming to some people, but God would say, I can't fix you. I will remake you. I will cause you to be born again. I'm not going to deal with the old Jeff and try to patch him up the best I can. I'm going to make Jeff a new creation in Christ Jesus. So when I see Jeff, I look at all the white, I look at Jeff through the white holiness of my son, Jesus Christ. Because all the merit of my son's righteousness is now to his account. Because my son took all his death and sin upon him on the cross. So now I am, can be just and the justifier of Jeff who believes in Jesus. 
So that understanding of the Bible and salvation is very, very earnest that we must understand this. But then we get to this book of James. How does that pan out? Well, it didn't pan out very good for God, you did it. <laughs> you know? As far as we know, there was a man held for his peaceful demeanor, his civil activists about against violence and so on and so forth, social injustice. But as much as we know, he died without Christ. I want people to know that I'm a Christian. I want people to know that God reached down and saved me when I was dead in sin. In fact, the Bible says I wasn't even seeking him. I wasn't even... I wasn't even a man that said, you know, I, I really want to know what God's about, and I, I just really have an inkling that I want to please Him. The Bible says I was none of that. I was doing my own thing, not giving God His due at all. God created me. God gave me breath. God gave me everything. He, he even put me in an affluent society, in a country that, that had everything. He gave me all these gifts, and I was going my way. I could care less. In fact... My plight, I was, I was thinking, if people needed Jesus, they needed a crutch. Religion. And God still loved me. And he saw me. And he chose me. Wow. So listen, verse 5, my beloved brethren of chapter 2. Has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom to which he promised to those who love him. God We said this last week. Excuse me for being redundant. God has promised me a kingdom. Not that I would be king, but that I would be co-heirs, that I would be able to revel in his glory for all eternity. He's promised me that I will be right there with him. He promised me that at the end of my life, whether I die or he comes back first, the veil will be taken away, and I will see him as he is. I can't wait for that day. You know, there's all types of pictures of Jesus. There's all types of, of, of metaphorical language. I remember Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, he was talking to a group of people one time, and he happened to come across, I think it was in France, uh, a painting that a, that a, a artist had done, you know, in the, in the Revelation where it says that, you know, his face was shining like the sun, his, you know, hair was white as wool, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword on. And this this artist depicted, tried to depict the best he could. He said it was it was a catastrophe. It was never meant, but it was meant to draw in our understanding of the glory of this. One who spoke and the universe left in existence. The one who, who raised us spiritually from the dead, which will raise us physically from the dead. Just uh, astronomical. And God has promised me that when I die or when he comes back, the veil will be lifted and I will see this glorious one and be with him forever. And I was poor and destitute and going my own way. And not caring anything about God or anything about man. I was caring about me. I told you before, my Bible in the 70s was a book called Looking Out for Number One. You guys might remember that. 
And now I'm going to dishonor? And I'm going to show favoritism? This is what Christianity really looks like. It's not those that are going to the, these big mega churches and wear the best clothes they can and try to show off who can look better. This is not a type of Christianity that says, you come to my church, I will tell you how to have your best life now. This is Christianity that is out in the street. You know, if it ain't happening here, it's not going to happen out there. And if it's not happening in your home, it's not going to happen in here. It's a chain reaction. There's got to be, like we've talked about, an exchange. And that's why I love James so much. Probably one of the first letters of the New Testament. He says, but in verse 6, again, you've dishonored this poor man. The rich oppress you and drag you in the courts. They blaspheme that noble name by which you are called. We want to sing a look at these affluent people. Come to my church. Endorse my church. You know, I'm not saying anything, but they get these, these sports heroes and these, all this to endorse somebody's ministry or, or whatever. And I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm just saying that, is that what we need? Do we need to, to have some type of endorsement of the rich and noble that if, they, if it wasn't for the grace of Christ, they would drag you into their courts. They would blaspheme your name. It would be just like you and I were before Christ. I don't need that. Get away from me. If you're going to preach Jesus, go somewhere else. And the verse 8 says, If you will fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, we won't be, spend much time on that today. I want to springboard off of this and get into our text. But in Romans 13, Paul, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And I think we've talked about that enough times. How does love fulfill the law? It fulfills it. Think about it. Think about the Ten Commandments, for example. If you love your father and your mother, you're going to honor them. Does love mean I only love them if they've only treated me right? No, because it's a love that you don't have apart from Christ. Don't bear false witness. And so forth. I want to read something real quick, and, and I, I, I just you don't have to turn there. Real, and then, like I said, we'll springboard into what we want to talk about today. I don't know about you, but I am so tired of religious hypocrisy. You know, I really am. The time has come. Uh, we need to understand what religious hypocrisy is really all about. Listen to what Jesus said. This is in Matthew uh, chapter twenty-two. Let's read a few verses. The teacher, they asked him, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. But he says this, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, this is not to say, wow, it's not to go, you know, I really love today. Listen, that guy, that Jeff guy made me feel like a bum because I don't love. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what real Christianity does when God comes into your life and changes you. 
Jesus is equating our love of, of, of people with the love of God. If you don't love people and act in love, how can you love God? John says it another way. He says, how can you hate people who you can see and say you love God whom you can't see? There's a spiritual understanding there. One is with our senses. The other is more importantly, spiritually. But they go hand in hand. And that is what we're looking at in the book of James here. Like I said, I am sick of religious hypocrisy. We see it everywhere. If you show partiality, you commit sin, verse 9, back in James 2. And are convicted of the law's transgressor. And we've talked about uh, verse 10 a lot. But it shows that nobody can keep the law. The law is spiritual. You know, uh, I think that I'm not, you know, I can't be, you know, obviously sure. But every time I look at that verse 10, I think of that guy who ran up to Jesus. who talked about that. He knew that eternal life. He knew Jesus had the answer. What must I do to have eternal life? And this is important when we look at the book of James. Out of, out of five of the, of the Ten Commandments he gave him, and by the way, keeping the Sabbath wasn't one of them. That was a Jewish, uh, meant for Jewish freedom. We won't get into that. He said, Lord, I've kept these up from my youth. See, that is innate in everybody. Have I done good enough? Have I, have I, have I done enough works? The Pharisees, which, which uh, some of the religious leaders, when we get in, into Acts 15 and so forth, by the way, we'll be in Acts fairly soon, so pray for that. Even they were so entrenched in the fact of doing, of doing, of doing. Yeah, we know that Jesus is Messiah, but you know what? If God said that Jeff, I'll save you, but I would be in hell right now. I can't hang on. I don't have the strength. That's why Jesus said, when you feel like collapsing, look to me, I am your strength. I can't hold on. Whoever keeps the whole law, verse 10, and yet stumbles in one point, or offends, get the King James, in one point, is guilty of all. If you've broken one point, you've broken it all. He goes on, verse 11, for he who said, do not commit adultery, has also said, do not murder. Now, if you commit, do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. I'm not going to go to, to a, a judge, any judge worth this grain of salt, say, judge, I know that I've I know that I murdered this one guy the other day, or, or you know, I know I sped, but you know what? I kept most of my life. I've, I've done pretty good. I'm taking this from a movie that we like, but it's a good illustration. Is that a good judge or a bad judge? It's a bad judge. You are not going to be judged on what good we've done. We're going to be judged on the law that we have broken. And Christ gladly took that upon himself. So don't tell me that just because you haven't murdered, but you have committed adultery, you're not a transgressor. And that is the crux of sin. And that is why the cross is so offensive to people, because they don't want to go there. They want to go, hey, you know what? I've done the best I can. I'm a pretty good guy, and they want to bank on it. Are you going to bank your eternity on that? 
Wow. So, verse 12, speak and, and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. We have liberty. We don't have license. We have liberty to do what is right. We have liberty to live righteously. We've talked about that before. I love that fact. I don't have to be immersed in sin. I don't have to be shackled in sin. God has set me free. But yet I'm free in Him. Do I have to keep being saved? I'm going to throw these out. These questions will come along as we go through this chapter. Do I, answer this within yourself, do you have to keep being saved? If you answered yes, you don't understand the gospel. How am I justified? Am I justified by faith and good works? Did the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse me from my sin? But then if I go into sin by good works, I have to keep myself saved? No. For us that have been in Christ, that have been instructed, that know the Word of God, these might seem elementary, but you would um, you would be amazed at the people that are out there that don't understand these things. That there are Christians out there that are walking, that they're trying to tell other people and lead other people to, to the Messiah, which is great. But they don't understand themselves, their own footing, their own position. So they're not confident, they're not sure. So when the wind of, of, of things come in and blow, like well, like Walter Martin says, the average, and this was way back, the average Jehovah's Witness, for example, can turn the average Christian into a spiritual pretzel in 30 seconds. I thought that was, a, that was an amazing concept. Because we don't understand these things. We want to be confident. We want to know beyond a next breath that if I were to die right now, what's my plight going to be? Where am I going to be? Wow. The law of liberty. I'll tell you one thing. Jesus said an amazing thing. Remember? That if we come to him as the door, he is the door to enter into the Father's house. And we enter into that door and we're saved. We're going to go in and out, find pasture. We have liberty to walk in the righteousness that he's given us, in the joy that he's given us. But look at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment, or rejoice, like the fact that it, re, it rejoices over judgment. We've been shown mercy. That is God's way. He's a merciful God. We talked about on Wednesday nights. His last resort is judgment. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Mercy always triumphs. It always rejoices. I love that. It rejoices over judgment. God rejoices to show mercy more than judgment. God is... When God comes to the point of judgment, there is no return. That's why when a man leaves this world without Christ, there is no opportunity to return. At all. Verse 14. 
What does it profit, my brethren? If someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can faith save him? As, as kind of a, a, a capping on what we're going to talk about, we're referring to this often. It is a passage that is very well known, but is also very, very uh, pointed in the way of, of this Christian life. And it's Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to turn there real quick... What's amazing about this, this epistle is that in the preceding uh, chapter and verses, we, we know that God has not only blessed us with every spiritual blessing, He's chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, He's predestined us as adoption by sons, He's made us accepted in His person, in Christ. We know that God raised Christ up from the dead, and the power that God used to raise Christ from the dead, He used in you and I's life when we became born again. We are new creations in Christ. And we know that, that as and when Christ was raised from the dead by the power and the glory of God above all principality and power, we know that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that He raised us up together with Him. And made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. And that's in, in chapter 2, verse 6. Going in that, that sequence I just had mentioned. God did it. We are new creatures. We have a position. Not based on our performance. Based on His performance. There is a word that the Bible uses called propitiation. Which says that there was a sacrifice that God laid down. And this sacrifice, once believed, received, and entered in, totally satisfied the justice of God. The Lord God Almighty is satisfied with the work that Christ did on your and I's behalf. Period. There is nothing we can add to it. There is nothing we can subtract to it. Our good works do not add any sparkle of polish, if you will, to this wonderful transaction that Jesus Christ did on the cross for you and I. That is biblical, settled fact. Now, after we read that we've been raised together in the economy of God, we are sitting in the heavens with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where you and I will be forever. The Apostle Peter says it is a reservation that we have in heaven for us forever. You and I have a reservation. My wife and I went out to eat the other night. I called in before and got a reservation at a certain time. You and I have a reservation. We went a certain time. They had our table ready for us. Thank God that you and I as Christians have a reservation reserved in heaven for us. It's been a completed transaction. So then Paul goes on to explain this completed transaction. Look at it again. We'll start in verse 6 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. Again. And raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places of Christ Jesus. Look at verse 7. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
Now we get into this understanding. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That is even not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is grace in the Bible? It's not only unmerited favor, but it is everything that God has shrouded on you and I through Christ. God gave himself and everything he had unreservedly. His love, his mercy, his righteousness, he gave it to us. He lavished it upon us in Jesus Christ. That is grace. The Bible says you are born again in grace. You will go through this life in grace. You will be set in the heavenlies in grace. So it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Look at verse 9. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmen, verse 10, created Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we see that we're saved by grace through faith, period. God had done a work. And it's called that, that saving, that all-satisfying sacrifice, that aroma of sweet-smelling sacrifice for the sins of you and I that came up to God the Father because Christ was crushed, He was bruised, He was crucified, He was buried, He was risen on your and I behalf, and we are saved. And from that new life that was planted, isn't it ridiculous that we would take a seed and put it in the ground and not expect it to grow? That's illogical. We put a seed into the ground, and we water it, and it grows. God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. I have been raised with Christ. I'm alive again. By grace, I've been saved. Because I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life and the flesh that I live, I live by the faith in the Son of God. So we see that this life is transacted, this salvation has been bought and paid for at a horrible cost of Christ's blood. And it is mine as an inheritance, as a gift, as a reservation. And then the life of works start flowing. Then the reality of what has transpired flows. That's the idea of public baptism. It's the demonstration of the world to the world of what has happened on the inside. Christ has died, but he's risen again. Hallelujah, and he rose for me. And all that place their trust in, in him are born again. Wow. So we see that this life logically is followed is holy of God. And it's great. Verse 14 again. What is a prophet, my brother? Someone says, you I have faith, but he has no words. Can that faith save him? Let's read down a little bit. This is going to get very interesting. If a brother, verse 15, or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, depart in peace, be warm and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? It doesn't profit anything. Or what use is it? I think is a better way of translating that. What use is it? There's no use there. It's a bunch of garbage and it's a bunch of gibberish and it's good philosophy. 
You know, people might want to hear, you know, this. if I, you go in a bookstore and, and the self-help section is nine times bigger than, you know, anything else, everybody wants to get philosophy, but if it doesn't have substance to it, I don't want it. I just don't want it. Thus, verse 17, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We're starting to define here, folks, biblical faith. Biblical faith is different than the faith and belief of the world. Ah, just believe. Believe in anything? Yeah, just believe. Just have faith. You know, you're going to do a difficult time right now. Just have faith. You You know, you've been a good person. Just have faith. You know? Just have faith God will, God will be, you know, pleased with, with your life. You've tried, you've done your best. But the problem with that is, is faith does not produce works that last. Faith does not produce fruit that lasts. Faith does not produce anything plastic fruit. I remember when I was growing up, my mom was a meticulous housekeeper. She always had a big centerpiece on the table, plastic fruit. It looked so real that most... Most of my friends thought it was real fruit. It was plastic. Had no substance to it. Jesus said, I pray that you would bear fruit, not your fruit remains, that my Father might be glorified. That's what we want. That's what biblical faith does. <laughs> so if you're religious and you don't have biblical faith, you're going to wither away. You have no substance to you. But someone will say, verse 18, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, before I get into it, you know, the Bible, is, in essence, is the perfect law of liberty. Because the Bible is, is about the grace of God and the goodness of God and God's character. You know, the, the fallacy that man thinks that uh, the Bible is some type of man's... Uh, earnest desire, earnest effort to present God to man? No, it's not. The Bible is God's document, God's revelation to man. So God is going to describe to man how he is like. He's not only going to tell man his absolute condition, he is also going to tell him of how his perfect righteousness is light years away from man's death in sin. Man has a problem. Works are the outward proof of the reality of our faith. They give outward expression to what would otherwise be invisible. Let me say that again. These works that come from biblical faith, come from a renewed heart, a born-again or born-from-above individual, the, they only give expression to what would otherwise be invisible. Now before we go on, I asked before, are we saved by anything other than faith? Let me say a few things. Okay, we are justified by grace. You'll find that in Romans chapter 3 verse 24. We're justified by grace. It's a legal term, actually, that says that we are not only acquitted, but we don't even have that on our account. 
you know, some people have, you know, you know, they'll get a DUI and the DUI won't be erased from the record for seven years or whatever. God doesn't deal that way. When we are justified in Christ, we are not only acquitted, but we are, that's not even on our record. The Bible also says in Romans 5.1, we are justified by faith. The Bible says that we're justified by his blood. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. We are justified by God. Romans chapter 4. Here's where it gets interesting. We are justified by works. James chapter 2. We are judicially justified forever in the sight of God by our faith, but... Our faith is validated, if you will, by our works that produce that. A person is justified by grace, faith, blood, God, power, and works, with no contradiction in any of these. These statements present different aspects of the same truth. And that's what we're looking at here. Different aspects of the same truth. The truth being that I am justified because Jesus Christ took my sin on the cross. He buried it. He was resurrected. He rose bodily and physically. And he ascended in the in heaven to appear in the presence of God for me. And I return from my sin. I receive him. I believe in that. I am born again. And I have a position in him. Done. Now if I'm the thief on the cross, when you didn't have time to do works... That's one thing, but I'm down here living a life as a soldier, as an ambassador, as a witness. And this is to whom James writes. Grace is a principle upon which God justifies. Wow. Faith is the means by which man receives it. The blood is the price which Jesus Christ had to pay. There was no other way around it. Otherwise, the Bible is a fragmented book. The scarlet thread of redemption runs from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through Revelation 22. You cannot break that thread is unbroken. You cannot deal with it. If you don't understand that scarlet thread, so to speak, of redemption, or the thread of redemption, the Bible will be a disfragmented book or fragmented book to you. So the blood is the price which Jesus had to pay. God is the active one in justification, not us. Did you know that? We are not the active agent, if you will, in justification. God is. And power is the proof. Paul says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And what do works do? Works are the result of these works our biblical works are the result of grace the result of our biblical faith the result of the shed blood of Christ the result of the power of God and our salvation the result of him active from the first day until the very second when we appear before Christ it's all because of him now having that as kind of an overview and understanding 
Let's go back to verse 18 and look at this real closely. But someone will say, you have faith and I will, sh- and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Who is James talking about here? Man, not God. He's talking about validity before man and not God. Because Paul, we can sum it up in this verse in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. This is exciting. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 and elsewhere and just so many places. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do I have peace with God? By faith. I'm justified that I saw Christ dying for me. That God sent, you know, let's make it personal. We, should, we need to start making the gospel personal. Let me put it bluntly. Christ came and died for me, for Jeff Graham. I don't want to generalize anymore. Because when I evangelize and I'm a witness to somebody, I want them to know God loved you and sent Christ for you. Not you and your grandmother and your buddy and your mom. Christ came for you. God loved you. But He's just and He's holy and He's righteous. There was a problem here. What is God going to do to get you to Himself without dirtying Himself, so to speak? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my son, and I'm going to clothe him with a body, and he's going to walk like in perfectness, keeping my law for you, because you couldn't. So he's going to answer your dilemma of daily living. You could not keep the law, so he's going to do it for you. And if there's a problem, you've had daily living. You're a sinner. You're a sinner by nature, you're a sinner by choice, you have a problem. So if my son, who's going to uphold my law and do everything that is representative of me, in fact, he will be the righteousness that you need. So he's going to take your sin and he's going to heap it upon his shoulders. And God the Father is going to strike him instead of you. And three days later, he's going to raise him from the dead as proof that God is satisfied. Now he can be just, like he always is, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I am justified by God. How am I going to show my faith why I am here in the battle. He says in verse 18, I'm going to show you my faith by my works. Wow. Do you believe that there is one God? You do well, even the demons believe and tremble. You know, that literally is the fact that there is one God. Literally, you believe that there is one God. You do well. We're not, you know, when, when uh, monothe- monotheistic theology or monotheistic thinking is that there is one God, there's one being, surrounded by pantheism, surrounded by all these religions that have not only maybe 
hundreds or, or whatever, thousands of gods. We have a God for everything. You want to get fertile? We have a God for this. God of fertility, of God of, of, of you know, getting the vegetation, of God of everything, God of different things. We, then we came from Baal worship. I mean, just all these different things. Now we have a one God. You believe in one God that demons also believe and tremble. Because this one God has the control of our destiny, not us. This one God not only breathes existence into life, He has also breathed life from the dead and you and I that would care to turn to Him by faith. And you answer me just from logically speaking. If I said that I love God and you knew, you knew by, by outward circumstances or whatever that, that I'm really a nasty husband, that I treat my wife subservient, that I, I really don't care about my kids. In fact, I don't care about much but making money. What would you think? You just named half the church. And I think that it's such a fallacy, although some do it very innocently, to try in their hardest they can to be good. I want to be good. I desire to be good. I want to be everything that God wants me to be. But I have a war going on within me. That which I want to do, I don't do. That which I don't want to do, that I find myself doing. So what am I? Am I on probation? And I am good standings with God one minute, but not good standings the other minute? No. The good works that do produce out of my life are simply the product of a biblical understanding of faith. We go back to remember we were in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 11. Or excuse me, verse, or chapter 11, verse 1. That is substance. Faith is the substance of things not seen. It's the evidence. Hebrews 20, but do you not, do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Faith without works is dead. Faith apart from works is head belief. Okay, let's put it to you simply that, that I can say. I'm, I'm, I'm very simple and... Uh, but these are life-changing truths. I don't want to be theological. I, I want to be simple. I want to know these things. Simply put, folks, faith apart from works is head belief. Therefore, it's dead belief. Now, if you can remember that, that saying, that's fine. But I was taught that by, by my pastor, and it has always stuck in my head. Faith apart from works is head belief, therefore it's dead belief. I can't have all the theological understanding I want. There's certainly not a lack of, of, well, there is a declining lack of good books, but there's a lot of good books out there. But we are not called to be filled with head belief. We're called to act upon our convictions. And no man that doesn't act upon his conviction, he better understand that he's on dangerous ground. You know, 
We're going to go on to a section, and, and you know, I'm, I'm not going to apologize. I've I got a few more minutes, and I thank you for sitting here. But you know what? If these truths are something that we can just set aside for 15 or 20 minutes now, I, I believe that we're probably in the wrong place. Because time is short, brethren, and we don't have time to mess around with not understanding the basic uh, doctrines of Christ. You know, we've talked so much about how the New Testament is formed. With the outer, it's like an egg. The white is the doctrine of Christ. We need right doctrine. We wouldn't break open an egg, and if we saw that the white was already deteriorating, we would, we would deem the egg no good, and that is true. So we need a right understanding of the doctrine of Christ. It's the white of the egg, but the yolk is the love of Christ. And that's what makes the egg complete. You have the doctrine of Christ that surrounds the love of Christ. And these things are so important. They're so wonderful. What else are you going to do on a Sunday morning? I, I get uh, very, very emotional about these things because this is God speaking. Is it true or not? We don't have time to waste. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Let's go down. Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And work by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Verse 24. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Verse 26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. There's a spiritual understanding in verse 26, and we'll get back to the other ones. Look at that real closely. As the body without the spirit is dead. What does my body do? My body gives expression to who I am. You cannot see me other than by my body. You don't see the real me. Nobody sees the real me but God. The real me is spiritual. I have been clothed with flesh that gives expression of who I am. I have emotion. I have reasoning. And so this text right here, the verse 26, really is a calculation, if you will, of the, of the preceding verses. Always everything in context. The body without the spirit is dead. You take away my spirit, I am dead. What people call dead. And I am dead in God's eyes? Absolutely not. I am a spiritual being. I am an eternal being. I will live one place or the other. I will either live in hell or Christless eternity, a place without God forever in torment, or I will live with Him and be with Him forever as He created me to be. He did not create hell for people. He created hell for the devil and his angels. People choose to go there. It's the ultimate banishment from what people always wanted anyway. I don't want God. So you take the spirit out of my body, it is dead. You take the works 
that biblical faith should produce out of it. It is not biblical faith. Because biblical faith is faith in an object, not in faith what I can do. It's in faith what Jesus Christ has done. If God sent his son to be the propitiation of the world, and that he took mice, in other words, he came down and he said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to sacrifice my son for Jeff. Because I want him where I am. Jesus told the disciples that in John 14. He desires that we would be with him. That's God's desire for you and for I. And he said, I know what I can do to do that. And that's why it is so offensive to the devil. It is so offensive to this worldly church. It is so offensive to those that love their sin because God did it. God said, I am going to satisfy my righteousness. I am going to pluck up Jeff from the death of hell and separate from me forever. That's what hell is, by the way. And I am going to be remain to my justice and my holiness and my perfect righteous character, which if the, this world right now in judgment would see me unveiled, the heaven and the earth could not handle it. There was no place found for them. They would flee forever. That's how glorious our God is. We need to understand His holiness. And when we do, we have a dilemma. But God says, I, as their creator, I will be their redeemer, and I'm going to send my son because I love Jeff Graham, and I want him more than he'll ever realize that I want him with me. So what am I going to do? I'm righteous and holy. My son, who is going to be righteous and holy, is going to take the punishment for his sin. And now Jesus would have remained in the grave. It would have been a lot of controversy. But he rose from the dead bodily and physically in, 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 the, in the body that God had prepared for him. We know by the physical evidence that God was pleased and raised him from the dead. He didn't raise him as another person. He didn't raise him as a spirit. He raised him bodily and physically in the same body that he was crucified in. Showing beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was pleased and raised his son from the dead. And all who turn to him in faith and come to him as the Savior will be saved from sin. There are no works involved in our salvation. But our works come from a biblical faith that is rested in Christ. And that can do nothing else but produce fruit. Nothing else but produce fruit. Now, are all trees the same? No. We have different apple trees. Some apple trees, you do too, that produce apples and they're, they're, they pop out quick. Others produce slower. We can't judge on the fact of how God runs His orchard. God causes all to grow at His time, but it will grow. Jesus said, if your branch that doesn't bear fruit, it's just not natural. Abraham, let me go through these real quick. You can look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed in God. But Isaac came after that. Isaac came in Genesis 22. Abraham believed God and what God had promised him. 
And yet we look in, in Genesis 15 again, where he believed in God. He looked out and he saw and he believed in the Lord. And it was declared on him righteousness. It was imputed his account because of his belief. And yet we see in Genesis 22, the, the fruit of that. He was justified by faith in God's sight. He showed the world, and we'll see that. And um, you know, one one amazing thing about this, uh, and I'm, I'm almost done. Please bear with me. This is. I told you I wouldn't apologize for this. Today is a very special day. If you look at Hebrews chapter eleven, verse nineteen, you start to get a little bit of understanding. A little bit of understanding how this faith of Abraham produced the works to sacrifice his son. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. Well, let's go to 18. It says, Of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Are you serious? You promised me a son. You gave it to me. Now you want to sacrifice him? Look at the reasoning for his faith. Look at the next verse, verse 19. Concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he has also received in a figurative sense. He believed in who God was. God had promised, and he acted upon that. So by faith, that was done. It says in verse 22, Do you not see that faith working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? Perfect biblical faith will be packaged in the works it produces. Verse 23, in the scripture was fulfilled, it says, Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Look at verse 24, a lot of people, a lot of people trip up on this verse. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Remember, James in chapter 15 of Acts was the one that made the precedent of the fact that we are justified by grace and faith. Because these, these religious leaders were citing this very same concept. Wait a minute. No, 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 no. We, we're, we believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but... No buts. But biblical faith is what men see that the, the reality of your faith. I have known Christians, and so have you, that they claim to be Christians, but there is never any outward visibleness of their faith at all. At all. You wonder why they don't even just call themselves Buddhists. Why not? Call themselves something else. If you want to be nice, I can be nicer than anybody. I can be nicer and do more good works than probably half of you can. Because I was raised up to be a nice guy. You know? Cleanliness is next to godliness. And so on and so forth. All your righteousness are like filthy rags, the Lord says. Wow. Man is that a man is justified by works, not by faith only. 
The next thing I want to look at, and then we'll, we'll be done, is Rahab. Rahab, wow. You know, she's in the genealogy in Matthew, first chapter, aren't you? How fitting. How fitting that she would be in the genealogy of the, of the Master Himself, of the Savior. She could no longer be in that genealogy than you and I, apart from Christ. No more. She was saved by faith, and the good works followed, and wow. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I gave you a few things, and you were faithful, and now you're going to be blessed with more things. You can't get away from it. The talents. Some was with one, two, five. This is my rendition, because I'm just simple. And God says he gives each one according to his own ability. So I may be only to handle two, whether you can handle five. It doesn't matter. God gives. It's a matter of what we do with it. The fruit that we bear with it. Rahab. Wow. William McDonald's makes, makes a comment. Were these the good works of Abraham and Rahab? Certainly not. Whoa, really? Certainly not. In Abraham's case, it was the willingness to kill his son. In Rahab's case, it was treason. If you remove faith from these works, they will be evil rather than good. Let me say that again. The, were these the good works of Abraham and Rahab? And by the way, we all know the story about Rahab, right? She received a spy in the Jericho, and she hit him and sent him out another way. Because at first, when you hear, she heard about this awesome God, who everywhere the Jews walked, he put the fear of people. And undoubtedly, she heard the, the Hebrews coming out of Egypt, and so on and so forth. She had faith, and she trembled before God. She knew these men were here of God, and they were godly men. So on that faith, she hid them, and sent them out another way. And you all know the story of Jericho, how that was a great defeat. But, again, this is a great quote by William MacDonald. Were these good works of Abraham offering up Isaac, Rahab sending out the spies another way? Were these their good works? Certainly not. Again, in Abraham's case, it was willingness to kill his son. That's evil. In Rahab's case, it was treason. That's evil. If you remove faith from these works, they would be evil rather than good. So you see where faith produces the biblical works, and works without faith is dead, just like faith without works is dead. To summarize, I'll close with this. Let's, let's test our faith. Like Abraham, am I willing to offer the dearest thing in my life to God? It doesn't have to be your son or your daughter. But are you willing to offer the dearest thing in your life? Think about it. Are you willing? Are you willing to offer that site on the internet? Are you willing to offer your lust for money? Are you willing to offer your greed, your pride, your wanting to be better than somebody else, your plastic Christianity, your unnatural relationships, your wandering eyes, 
Are you willing to give up your, your ungodly thoughts? Let's test our faith. Are we, are we willing to offer the dearest things in my life to God? Am I, like Rahab, willing to turn traitor to the world in order to be loyal to Jesus Christ? Am I willing to be called a traitor of this world to be loyal to Jesus Christ? God loves you so much that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes on Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the real deal. Some people play around with Christianity. We are called to be watchmen. The time is late. The hour is late. Christ is waiting. And for those Christians that are flirting around, playing around, it's time to stop and realize that Jesus Christ is coming very, very soon. The signs are all around us. It's everywhere. The time is short. It is a few minutes to midnight, and there's no time to mess around anymore. We get hits all the time on the, on the Internet. People searching for answers. It's time. God is, is waking somebody up. And I pray that if, if this is you, then you would realize the seriousness of what you're dealing with. Because Christ wants to be your all in all. And he's coming again. And he's coming very, very soon. To receive those unto himself. That where he will be, they will be with him forever. Mike, do you want to pray for us? Thank you for reminding us this morning in that song that you are for us. Our trust in you is not misplaced. You, you are merciful and gracious and uh, trustworthy. You've proven it so many times throughout history and throughout your word. Thank you for giving us the liberty to live before you righteously um, in good works, Lord, uh, by a living faith, not, not a dead faith. Thank you for the food that we're about to have and the fellowship. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.